thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis, and as you know, we have started looking at the scientific aspect of the book of Genesis, which in one sense, uh, it is a distraction, but it's a necessary distraction, because these topics and these subjects have come up so often. Um, what should we teach? Should we teach evolution? Should we teach creationism? How does science and faith harmonize, do they? Uh, there is currently a very strong onslaught on the faith, uh, a heresy that is both ancient and new, and we call it materialism. And it manifests itself in a very strong way within the teachings of the theory of evolution. That's why it is important for us to understand what this theory is and how to apprehend it properly. I will begin by telling you that I am a supporter of the theory of evolution. I am in no way against it. There are some amendments and there are some things that we need to change. But I, I do not um, support the creationist position. And I hope that by the time I'm done with this lecture and next lecture, you'll fully understand why. As a matter of fact, I will say that the creationist position is not Catholic. And... Um, we will see how this is going to unfold. I'm laying this out so you know where I'm coming from. Um, and I hope to be able to present you with a convincing argument that there is a good reason for us to look at these things in the right context. Uh, I think the very first thing we need to do is clearly understand what the theory of evolution is and is not. There's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding this theory. There's a lot of um, stuff flowing around it, and I think we need to clear all this. And my goal is once more to bring it down to a level that everyone can follow and understand. It will be an easier lecture than last one, quantum theory. Um, and uh, hopefully you will uh, grasp what's behind this theory and why it is so attractive to so many scientists why I personally think, in many ways, I, I think it's a very attractive theory, and it has a very strong points. Um, and, uh, and next lecture, we'll come back and visit some of its weak points. So the first thing we need to realize, and I think all of us do realize that, and perhaps this is why 
more so than any other scientific theory, more so than the Big Bang or the quantum theory, the theory of evolution has been under such scrutiny. Because, as John MacArthur, a Christian theologian, wrote, the Bible on creation and the fall of Adam, he said, and I quote, The starting point of Christianity is not Matthew 1.1, but Genesis 1.1. Tamper with the book of Genesis and you undermine the very foundation of Christianity. If Genesis 1 is not accurate, then there's no way to be certain that the rest of Scripture tells the truth. If you reject the creation account in Genesis, you have no basis for believing the Bible at all. If you doubt or explain away the Bible's account of the six days of creation... Where do you put the reins on your skepticism? Joan Roughgarden, in her book, Evolution and Christian Faith, she's an evolutionist biologist, she specializes in lizards, wrote, How do I choose what to understand from the Bible? In connection to this passage, and she answers, I try to follow Jesus' example. That is the conundrum that many Christians will face. How do you interpret the book of Genesis? appropriately, in light of what science has shown us today. Cardinal Schoenborn, in his book, Chance or Purpose, writes, Believing in God, the Creator, believing that He created heaven and earth, is the beginning of belief. That is how the creed begins. This is the foundation on which everything else that Christians believe is based. Believing in God and not believing that He is the Creator would mean, as Thomas Aquinas once said, not believing in God at all. Belief in God as Creator is the foundation for all the other things we must believe. That Jesus Christ is Savior, that there is a Holy Spirit, that there is a Church and eternal life. The stakes are very high indeed. That is why this theory of evolution has caused such um, a controversy. I might add, though, that this controversy is mainly, mainly an American uh, phenomenon. Um, Here is, if I can find my page, a point of view from Latin America, which is slightly different. In June 2005, the Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador organized a conference on evolution in the Galapagos. The distinguished evolutionary biologist Antonio Lascano of the Universidad Nacional Autonoma de Mexico pointed out that the anti-evolution movement so vocal and powerful in the United States was absent in Latin America. Why? He asked, and he answered, because it is mainly a Protestant phenomenon. It isn't a Catholic phenomenon. Why is that so? Because the Catholic Church has not been opposed to the theory of evolution. Now, some of you might think that there is a very clear cut between the book of evolution and, I mean, the book of Genesis, I'm sorry, between religion and science. Well, there's been a number of polls that have been taken on this issue. I think they're they're worth uh, bringing up. A CBS News poll in November 2004, based on a nationwide telephone survey of 885 adults, showed that 65% of all Americans favor teaching creationism alongside evolution. 
A follow-up poll of 2,000 people by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life in July 2005 found that 64% were open to the idea of teaching creationism in addition to evolution. Hasn't changed much. The poll shows that about 40% are in favor of replacing evolution with creationism in a science curriculum. A poll in May 2004 of 1,472 physicians by the Lewis Finkelstein Institute at the Jewish Theological Seminary, together with HCD Research in Flemington, New Jersey, reported that 65% of doctors approved of teaching both evolution and creation in the schools. And 11% of Catholic doctors, plus 35% of Protestant doctors, a total of 46% of doctors, believe that God created humans exactly as they appear now. So it is not true that, the, that among doctors there is a swipe, widespread support of the theory of evolution. The majority supports it, but not all of them. Why? Because it's not really part of their curriculum. At the end of the day, if you're trying to become a doctor, you have other things to worry about, you know, not the least of which staying awake. So the polls show that doctors do not know any more than the general public about evolution, and a majority of the public, including doctors, want science and religion taught side by side. Now, this is not a new debate. This is actually a fairly old debate. How many of you remember or how many of you know about the monkey trial in Tennessee? All right. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, in 1925, there was a trial called the Scopes Trial that brought about precisely this issue to, to the court. Uh, Scopes was a teacher who wanted to teach evolution in the classes, and he was brought to court by... Uh, he was prosecuted, brought to court, and uh, this, this whole trial was dramatized in a classic movie, you may want to watch it, 1960 movie called Inherit the Wind with Spencer Tracy, and uh, in that particular movie, evolution came out as a winner in the movie. So why all this rucus? Why the concern? Why the debate? Because, as we said earlier, Evolution seems to strike at the very heart of Christianity, the book of Genesis. And there is a very strong knee-jerk reaction against it, so much so that people are willing to take it completely out of the class and replace it with something else. Well, for us to form a proper opinion, we need to understand what we're dealing with. How many of you feel that they completely and clearly understand what the theory of evolution is all about? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have some notion or idea about what it is all about? Okay, very good. So let's try and understand what it is and what it is not. Next, we're going to see those areas where the theory is firmly established as a science. Those areas that ought to be taught in school without any doubt. And the next lecture, we'll deal with the areas where the, the theory has troubles, has challenges. Yes? Um, is there a view as to how the Jewish population stand on the issue in the United States? Anywhere? anywhere? I don't know of anywhere about the, the Jewish population in the United States. I do not have figures for this particular issue. What I can tell you from other polls that have been taken about the Jewish population in the United States is that they tend to track the general population. There isn't a Jewish point of view, if you will. The religious view it one, day, one way, the liberal view it a different way, and it pretty much blend with the rest of the population from other surveys that I've seen so far, particularly when it comes to elections, for instance. All right. There are two principles that you need to remember when it comes to the theory of evolution. 
Let's deal with the first one. First principle. All life is related. That's the first principle of the theory of evolution. All life is related. What does that mean? It means that all life belongs to one huge family tree. You know how some of you may today be doing your family tree and finding out you have some pirates and criminals and other things like that. Uh, yeah, there seems to be one constant in, in the family tree in the United States. You have to have an Indian in there. Uh, seems to be constant. I don't know why. Anyhow, be it as it may, you know what I'm talking about. You build a tree, right? Well, take it past humans and keep on building up, and eventually you can take all the strands of all living creatures, animals and plants, and bring them all the way back up to one common ancestor. Let's stop right there and think about that. Okay, let's think about that. What does that mean? And how can that be? Well, let's deal with how can that be first. Oh, by the way, before I do that, that tells you that man, monkeys and apes all go all the way back to one ancestor. The theory of evolution, nowhere does it say that man descends from monkeys. You'll hear that often in the news and elsewhere. That's a liberal view or a poetic view on the theory. Nowhere does it say that one day there was a monkey who jumped down and picked up Times Magazine and started reading it and smoked a cigar. That's not what the theory says. All that it says is that there is a relationship between all these creatures going all the way back to a common ancestor. All right? I want to emphasize this again. The theory of evolution is not teaching that man comes from monkeys. It simply teaches that all these lines, including man and whales and crabs and ants and, and parsley and mint and whatever else you can think of, go all the way back to a common ancestor. Well, on what basis can a theory says that? Well, on what basis can you say that somebody is the son of somebody else? How can you tell? When you see a kid, you don't go take the DNA of the kid and sample it against the father, do you? Now you look at the kid and you go, oh, he's got his dad's nose. Let's, let's be very simple here. Let's not jump to DNA. All right? I hope you don't do that. Come here, kid. Let me get your DNA. There is what? resemblance. There is resemblance, right? Everybody's comfortable with that? Everybody thinks this threatens scripture or our belief in God? No, right? Okay, now what is what type of resemblance are we talking about? It is morphological, right? Morph, the form, right? I mean, none of us try to figure out if the heart of a kid looks identical to the heart of the father, right? We don't look at the organs, do we now? We just look at the form, and this suggests something. Well, based on the study of a monk, Benedictine monk, his name is Mendel. You've heard of Mendel? Yeah, he was a monk. All right? Studying peas, about 30,000 generations of peas, the brother Mendel carefully categorized, he figured out that there is actually a relationship between form and something that is causing the form to happen. And today we know that this is the gene. The gene. So the genes combine in different ways and transmit from parents to children the form. 
Therefore, if the son looks like his dad and not like um, somebody else, me, right? There is therefore a notion that the gene strand of the son is closer to the gene strand of the dad than it is to mine. That is key as part of the whole theory of evolution. Okay? Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but the general idea is what we see in the form is found in the genes. All right? You're with me so far? Okay. So now, let's take, let's take that principle that when you look at the genes and you see genes closer to each other, there is relationship, and extend it. And what do we find? We find that all life pretty much shares the same building blocks of all the genes. And that actually we're closer to a pig than we are to an ape, if you really want to look at it. That's why a lot of uh, experiment and labs have done on pigs, and not so much on apes, because they're closer to us than from a genetic standpoint. Not the f form, not the shape, but the genes. That's why the thinking in a few evolution is that all life is related. It's driven by the DNA. Why is it that all life has the same DNA? And one thought is, well, because all life comes from one source and shares that amongst all. We see it, we see it among families, and so therefore we, we see that the human family, and we see it at the at all, all that, that is living. All right? All life is related. Now, when we will go back to Scripture, actually, um, if we can do that this right now, let me show you that, uh, that, that Scripture does not contradict this principle. It doesn't even say it in any different way. So the first chapter says, Beginning with verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said it was good. And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which in is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament, and then after that, going to the fifth day, And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. So notice, God doesn't create. You notice? There's no direct act of creation. He says, let the water brings, bring forth. There's something, there's a creative principle in the waters that bring forth life. And we're going to study this a little bit more carefully. But the, the idea here is that essentially God is saying, life is, is, is essentially sprouting everywhere according to His will. But nowhere here does it say that these are substantially or fundamentally different. So on that particular principle, there's no contradiction between the book of Genesis and the theory of evolution up to a point. And that's where we have our first difficulty.
So, when we say our life is related, what do we really mean? We mean, according to the theory of evolution, that we share the same gene pool. So far, so good. However, the one thing that we affirm, and this is a dogma that must be believed and assented to, God, at one point in history, intervened miraculously and put into a creature a supernatural soul. That is not the fruit of evolution. And that cannot be explained through evolution. Why? Because evolution is about the material progression of life. The soul is supernatural. Is there a contradiction between the two? No. However, one of our problems today is that the way the theory is taught seems to indicate that man evolved from this early ancestor and he is purely the product of that early ancestor. Therefore, man is purely material. Material. Man has no supernatural dimension. Once you deny the supernatural soul of man, you've basically denied all of Scripture. Okay? We call this approach materialistic evolution or atheistic evolution because they tend to go hand in hand. But this is not science anymore. This is theology. The scientific theory itself simply says that we have now an understanding that all life seems to be related and there are degrees of relationship and therefore we think that all of life goes back to a common ancestor. When in in a theological sense, we say God created all of life. So the fact that all of life seems to be related is a signature of a common creation. So there's no, no reason for us to feel threatened by that particular statement, all life is related. Fine. Anyone has issues with this? Anyone has a difficulty with this particular statement? Well, I do but I'll tell you about it next time. All right? Rich? I knew you were going to ask that. That's why I didn't bring it up. Yes, each within his own kind. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this. This is going to be a very interesting topic. What I will tell you, though, is that there is a a teleological principle that says that if God has put into the nature he created the intention of bringing forth life, each within its own kind, that it's entirely possible that this would happen because it would be guided then by providence. You see, we're going to come back, and it's actually a very deep problem, right? And we're going to come back, and it touches also on the issue of pain, on the issue of suffering, on so many different issues regarding this each with its own kind. We're going to come back to this. But on the overall principle that we're all related, I don't think anyone will have any issue with this. Okay? All right. All right. By the way, uh, just so that you know, about 50 to 99% of our DNA, what is the DNA? It's nothing more than a recorder of those genes I'm telling you about. People focus on the DNA. Really, what's important are the genes. Okay, the DNA is a way to record and pass this along. It's a small computer. Pardon? Yeah, it's a ROM. Yeah, exactly. It's a ROM. Read, 
essentially it's a write once, read many sort of technology. Yes, Ramsey. Very good. So uh, Ramsey is pointing out that the theory states that we started from some microorganism and we evolved out of it. I am leaving alone how life started. This is a really thorny issue. The short, the, the one thing I will tell you is that the theory of evolution does not know how life started, no more than the theory of Big Bang really understands how the beginnings started. There is this point where we really don't understand how life came to be. There is no understanding. No one knows. There are ideas, and uh, it's extremely speculative. But there, there, there's nothing right now to allow us to really understand how it happened. Okay, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later. About 50 to 99% of our DNA is shared with other species. Okay. All right, the second principle. So the first principle of life is related. The second, species change. Species change. All right, so what does that mean, species change? Well, let's look at dingoes in Australia. Have you ever seen a dingo? It's an Australian dog. The interesting thing about dingoes is that they were they're wild dogs introduced from Asia, and they were classified as dogs until, I think, two years ago, when they're now classified as wolf, as wolves. Why? Because they have adapted to their environment to such an extent that they now behave more like wolves than they do dogs. Right? So there's a change among species to adapt to their environment. Another example within the human species uh, would be uh, taken from uh, the following. Why do Eskimos have tiny noses while people who live in arid climate have larger noses? Humidity. Humidity. You live in very wet area, you need very little humidity. You live in arid areas, you need a lot of humidity. Noses adapt. Okay? This is adaptation. Every species has it. No exception. Species adapt to their environment. That's a good thing, won't you say? It is a good thing. So there is a change that has been documented and supported by a lot of... Uh, Studies done on moth and flies and uh, fruit flies and you name it, and just observation that indeed there is variation, adaptation within a species. Now, how species change? How do they change? That's the one question. According to the theory of evolution, in a very fundamental way, species change through natural breeding. That's it. All right, so what does that mean? It means that some individuals in the species breed, others don't. Those that breed will move the species in that direction. Now, artificial breeding has been known since the dawn of time. You want chicken that gives you eggs with a, an egg yolk that is yellower, than what was before because they sell better, what do you do? You find the hens that produces the eggs that have this kind of yellow color, what do you do? You get those to breed. And then you repeat that process. Right? This is called artificial breeding. When in nature, the same thing happens. Here's a cute example. You have a beaver that somehow is able to raise his neck two inch more than other one. Because he can raise his neck two inches more above the water, 
It means that when he carries a piece of wood full of mud, less of the mud will go in the water. I'm talking about a beaver building dams. You know beaver build dams, right? So, therefore, there'll be more mud on that stick, which means that his dam will be stronger and will be higher, which means he'll get more fish. He's going to live longer. He'll breed more of beavers who can raise their necks above the water. If that continues, eventually, the, race, the, the whole species of beavers move in that direction. Anybody has a problem with that? So, yes. Okay, now the question is, they, they, the, they say dogs come from wolves and they have transformed. Let's leave that aside for a second. We're going to come back to this. Right now, I'm just talking about the very simple principle that it goes through natural breeding. How does it, a whole species evolve? Well, actually through the breeding. What is important now? The theory of evolution overall is not random. I'm sure you've heard about random. Well, the theory overall is not random. It's actually very deterministic. Once the breeding takes place, the effect on the species are obvious. More or less. More or less. We have interesting cases, right? We have interesting cases. Can you think of a case where this example I gave you will not work? Ants. What's the problem with ants? Queens breed. Everybody else doesn't count. You can do all the evolution you want on those other guys. They don't count. They don't breed. Only the queens do. We'll, we'll come back to this next week. Yes. Yes. But the question is, now you're not talking. You're right. If the queens breed and then somehow they evolve, it will be passed on. The question is, you don't have now a large piece of part of the population that suddenly has randomly evolved. You have to hit those queens. You understand? The pool from which you can pull, pull the individuals, not only smaller, is extremely small. We're talking one, two, or three queens. There are, this is one. There are other concerns we have, but we'll come back to it. Now, let's keep on walking through this. So, in 1800s, Darwin used the expression natural selection to draw a distinction between artificial selection, which is what farmers do, and what happens in nature. Back then, that's what it meant. Unfortunately, the term selection today has an overloaded meaning. It means a lot more than what Darwin meant. The word selection conjures images of survival of the fittest, implies intentionality. It implies that somehow nature is randomly intentional. It's selected. Right? But that's not at all what the meaning was. So moving forward, I'm not going to use, you're not going to hear me say natural selection. Instead, I'm going to talk about natural breeding because this is really what is at stake. Forget selection. That's nothing being selected. Just breeding. That's what he meant. By the way, you've heard the expression survival of the fittest, right? And somehow this conjures images of a whole bunch of Schwarzeneggers running around in nature. That's not at all what was intended. What was intended was fit within a given context. Fit to the context in which they live. Right? That's all that was meant. So fit does not imply physical fitness as though the earth is some giant 24-hour fitness. It implies fitness to one's environment. Okay? 
So, so far, so good. There should be any controversy as far as this goes, apart from this issue I mentioned earlier about the soul. Okay, so we know that change occurs through natural breeding. Fine. So there are two, now, there are two key factors to this change. Two key factors for this change in the species. We call these source of selection and source of variation. Source of selection or source of breeding and source of variation. Usually, the source of selection or breeding is nature. Okay? In other words, we, we, there's no human intervention into the process. The question now is, what is the source of variation? And that's where we start with the controversy. The discovery of genes provides one answer. The source of variation is the genes, because individuals within the same species have different genes. Okay, so far so good. Now the next question. Why do they have different genes? In other words, where does this variation in the genes come from? That's the core. That's the crux of the whole matter. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you start thinking about it, you really think about it, this question is asking another question in a different way. This question is saying, how can I reconcile predestination with free will? This is what's at, at the heart of this question. How can I reconcile predestination and free will? It seems far-fetched, but bear with me, and you will see how this connection is, is right there. For the, for the time being, how are genes different? Between 1920 and 1940, evolutionary biologists such as Ronald Fisher, J.B.S. Harald, Haldane and Sewell Wright suggested that the genetic variation needed for evolution by natural breeding came from mutation. Mutation. Okay. So, genes change because of mutation. All right. What's mutation? Well, as you know or may not know, the way this whole thing happens is that genes, part of the DNA, are copied. Right? So, this is how a baby grows. These are cells divides. Genes are copied. So the DNA is read by a very complex and extraordinary process, and another copy of that DNA is made as part of the division of a cell. Well, sometimes there are errors in the copying process. In other words, the copying process doesn't produce an exact copy. It produces a copy that is different from the original. And the rate is one in one million. One in one million. It's a pretty good rate. It's amazing when you think about what's going on. All right. So what is mutation then? A mutation is simply the difference between a copy and the original. If there's a copy, if there's a difference between the copy of the DNA and the original, there's mutation. Now, mutation has two flavors. If it hurts the organism, it is called deleterious. If it helps the organism, it is called favorable. All right? So according to neo-Darwinism, why we call it neo-Darwinism? Because it is the theory of Darwin coupled with the findings of Mendel and the findings of the DNA. We call this whole thing neo-Darwinism. According to neo-Darwinism, evolutionary progress awaits the appearance of favorable mutations, and when they happen, 
the rate of individuals with the newly improved trait will overtake the rate of individuals without the improved trait, resulting in the evolution of the species. Okay, let's summarize all of this. How does evolution happen? In the following way. It happens in individuals. So there is a pool of individuals that form the species. Some of them, as they're having offsprings, remember, it's natural breeding. When, you, when, when there is, an, when off, offsprings are born, right, how are they born? They're born from genes from the father and the mother. Those are brought together, they're copied, and then the cell breaks and copies again. In that process of copying, there may be mutation, which are errors in the copying process. If the mutation is favorable, the offspring will end up with a quality that makes him more fit to the environment than his parents. If you have enough of these, these will overtake the guys who are less fit for the environment. Do we see that in nature? You bet we do. Moths are a perfect example where when moths were living in England in, in, uh, in a uh, pastoral setting, the color of the, uh, of the wings of the moth were, let's say, brown or green. So all the moths that were brown were more visible for the birds to eat than the ones that were green. So the bird would eat these ones more than the other ones. What happened to the population of moths? The green ones overtake the brown ones. That's it. This is how evolution takes place. There's no mystery there. So the whole thing evolved or adapted from brown to green. Then England went through industrial revolution, and the pastoral setting was replaced by bricks. Now, what hides better on a brick? A green or a brown? Brown. Guess what happened? The green got eaten more than the brown. The brown overtook the population. Now, in, in, in current times, in many of the towns in England, they're planting a lot of, lots of trees. What do you think is happening? Switching back. This is how it happens. There's nothing extraordinary about it in a fundamental sense, but there is something very extraordinary about it in another way. Okay, so how does this whole evolution occur? It occurs this way. You have a population living in an environment. There may be a change in the environment, a new predator or change in climate or what have you that cause certain individuals to be weaker as far as the environment goes than others. Those go. The ones who have the stronger trait stay and their um, offsprings take over. And if we continue this process, you have species evolving to fit their environment. Okay? This is it. This is the crux of this whole theory of evolution. Two principles. All life is related. Species change. Species evolve. I'm simplifying still. I just wanna, I want you, I want you first to appreciate the power and the beauty behind it. Because if you don't appreciate the power and the beauty of this theory, you can't really enter into a dialogue with someone who holds onto it like dear life. If you just dismiss the whole thing as nothing, you've not seen the framework that they've built in biology to explain all life. This is amazing. Yes, Rich. Yes, yes, absolutely, Rich. The, the problem is, you heard me say of species evolving, 
it, you can call it variation within the species. Where's the proof that you can move from one species to the other? Well, in the theory of evolution, you don't deal with species anymore. They're gone. There are no species. Okay, we're going to get to this. Okay. Right? So what I want you first to understand is that before Darwin and before Mendel, before these two are put together, the ideas about how life came about, how hereditary traits were passed on, were very folkloric. This is a huge progress over what we had before. I really need you to understand this and appreciate it for what it is. Now, you can take it and say a bunch of different things with it. Yeah, I can understand that. But the fundamentals, as far as I described it to you right now, are sound, and those need to be taught. They need to be taught. They can't be replaced by anything else because this is the best factual scientific framework we have right now for understanding biology. Now, is it perfect? Certainly not. Is it complete? Certainly not. Are there challenges? Absolutely. But you know what? The rest of science is exactly like that. I showed you the issues we have with the Big Bang Theory. I showed you the issues we have with quantum theory. There isn't one field of science where you don't have these issues propping up. Right? So we have to really understand where is the difficulty from a theological point of view, where do they cross the boundary, and when does it become a challenge for the faith? Not in anything I've showed you so far. There is no need for us to say that God performed, you know, is, I don't know, 100, 200, 300, 400,000 acts of special creation to create every species separately. Okay? There's no need for this. We can, as Catholics, conform to this view without any difficulty, provided that we understand the limit of science. As soon as somebody starts talking about the soul, he's not doing science anymore. He's in theology. All right. So the problem, now the question is, how does a favorable mutation occur? The answer is, randomly. Yes? Per copy, per copy. Per gene or what? No. Per, if you consider the number of copies that are made, on one out of a million might have an error. No, no, no. Think of copies of DNA being copied. Yeah. Okay? What does the word random mean? I'm sure you've heard random. This is random, right? Random. Well, the only thing that is random is the mutation. The rest is deterministic. Okay? What is random? Well, here's one idea. The density of freckles that appear on a person's skin is completely controlled by genes. All right? Well, genes and exposure to light. If you live in a cave, you won't have freckles. All right. Whereas the exact location of individual freckles seems to be random. Okay. Insects in flight, think of a fly, tend to move about with random changes in direction. If you've observed a fly, you can't tell which way it's going to go next making it difficult for pursuing predators to predict their trajectories. So it sounds like in flies, you really have embedded a random generator that gets the fly to move whichever way. So randomness isn't just about pure ignorance. It's not like it's, a, it's, it's hiding our ignorance. There are phenomena in reality that seems to be purely random. The other one we've seen in quantum theory is at the level of the particle. It seems that the, level of the, the way the particle behaves is truly random. There is a level of non-determinism built in. 
What is randomness? It's a lack of order, purpose, cause, or predictability in non-scientific parlance. A random process is a repeating process whose outcomes follow no describable deterministic pattern, but follow a probability distribution. Okay. Now, here's really what's really here's what, what's interesting. You go talk to evolutionary biologists about what random means, randomness means, and you won't get one answer. They are not. There is no standard answer for what randomness is in evolutionary biologists. I'll give you two examples. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, states, Natural selection has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. According to him, in, in nature... The, the process of evolution is truly random and has no purpose. It is purposeless. That's his position. Now, others, such as John Rothgarden, which I quoted earlier, would interpret this to mean, randomness, that the direction of evolution comes from the breeding side, not the mutation-generating side. So when they say it's random, they mean that the direction of evolution comes from the breeding side. That's what they mean by random. Very different from what Richard Dawkins is talking about. She adds, for us... Saying that mutation is random is a professionally acceptable way to admit ignorance. There isn't one monolithic view on randomness among evolutionary biologists. We need to keep that in mind. Because it's really very tough not to crack, defining what randomness is. And presumably, the gamut of belief in what randomness is may, rand may, may, may go all the way between these two positions. Ignorance and nature is completely random. They haven't figured that one out because they really don't know. Why? Because we don't have an operational model of how evolution works. That's the sticking point. We don't understand how evolution works. The difference in maturity between the theory of evolution and the theory of the Big Bang is that in the case of the theory of the Big Bang, we're really approaching a completely... Uh, operational model. We can explain how this happens step by step, second by second, as I walked you through it. All the way down to very, very specific details. That is still lacking here. We don't have that. So, the question now, does evolution have a direction? So, evolution is taking place, and we're going to come back and watch those questions, but let's assume now evolution is taking place. Is there a direction? Is it going somewhere? And I really have two, there are really two points of view. Progressive evolutionists, including Theodius Dobzhansky, you may have, have heard of him, who in, whom in 1954 published an influential article titled Evolution as a Creative Process, pointed out that the outcome of natural breeding led to marvelous improvement in the breed. He was studying fruit flies. Ronald Fisher, Sewell Wright, who, develop, who developed the famous fundamental theorem of natural selection, John Roughgarden and others proposed the idea that evolution seems to benefit the species overall. It had a positive direction. When you look at evolution overall, it looks like it's benefiting the species. There's a positive direction to it. Okay? And this is taken from a scientific point of view. They're not trying to argue from a theological point of view. They're saying, look, we started with a little thing like that, we ended up with man. Well, there seems to be positive direction embedded in evolution. Do you understand? In other words, the purpose of evolution is to evolve positively. That's what they're saying. A 
according to the observations they have. Ruff Garden, for instance, did a lot of studies where she looked at two species interacting, and she noted that when those two species actually end up working to help each other, both benefit. But when one is, is trying to expand at the, at the expense of the other, both lose. And she has a whole, and these are based on observations of lizards and their environments and other things like that. But the whole idea, therefore, is that within the process of evolution, there is this business of positive evolution moving forward. Other evolutionists basing themselves on a segregation distortion case where, well, never mind, proposed that there was no direction to evolution. So there are three, again, two schools. They're divided on that, on that subject. Some say, there is a positive direction. Others, Dawkins is one of their most famous advocates, says there is absolutely no direction. It's completely blind. It doesn't know where it's going, and it doesn't matter. And if we're here, we're just here. We're a product of chance. That's all. So key fact, the jury is still out on this issue, and there's no consensus. And before we know it, there are going to be more and more breakdown into the different views of the theory of evolution until they can come up with something that is a bit more operational than we have right now. Now let me show you a radical view, which is very interesting. I read it in The Blind Watchmaker, and Dawkins have a, has a, very, he's a great style of writing. He's very clear and entertaining, and he's wrong in a number of things. But beside that, he writes with a lot of clarity, and he presents a model that, from my point of view, is very exciting, very, very interesting. So here's what he says about this whole evolution deal. Throw away species. Forget species. No species. They're just life. Now, imagine, if, if you will, a grid. Right? Just a regular two-dimensional grid. Vertical lines, horizontal lines. Put a starting point, say, at the left end of your page, towards the middle. And now, on every intersection, on every intersection on this grid, there is what he would consider to be a potential creature. A potential creature. So every intersection of the grid has a potential creature on it, a creature that might come into existence. And so what is evolution then? It's nothing more than a random path from that starting point through all these creatures. The book is 500 pages long. I just summarized it for you. <laughs> well, he says more than that, obviously. But that's the fundamental idea in his approach. It's essentially, start here, and then it is a run, random walk. There's no rhyme or reason for it. There's no purpose for it. It just happens because the mechanism is such that when you start this engine, it'll keep on running. What is the purpose of evolution, he asks? And the answer is to make sure that the DNA survives. That's it. The purpose of life is to make sure that we pass along the DNA. What are we? We are a living container for the DNA, and we keep on passing it on. And he says, eventually, this life form that contains the DNA might change from biological to electronic. And the life form will pass into robots, which will then carry this further and further down the path. And he adds, poetically, and one day perhaps a robot will, st will stop and think about 
the origins and try to understand how he came about. So, he's consistent in his approach. He's very materialistic. There's no soul. There's no difference between a man and a beast. We just so happen to have rationality because we need it to survive. It's a product of evolution. Nothing more. And the purpose of life is simply to generate, to generate, um, to make sure that the DNA survives. He says the DNA is really the eternal form of life. It's a DNA. I'd say he's about two steps away from creating his own religion to compete with the, the Church of Scientology. Two steps away. I kid you not. I'm just expecting this to happen anytime soon. All right, so he effectively has this very consistent view about a process that has started. Why? Because it just started. Okay? And that continues to evolve through this process, through this, uh, um, you know, it continues to evolve because it has to, because it can, and it goes wherever it wants to without any reason. And it doesn't know where it's going anyhow. And if we're here, we're just here because it just so happened that we're here. But we could just as well not be here. Yeah, he's a best-seller author. What he's promoting is materialism in its purest form. Yes. Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Yes, of course. <laughs> he's an atheist. Absolutely. I mean, he's, just, he's at least true to his principles. So, that is the extreme view of the theory of evolution. Not all biology um, evolutionists um, uh, view it this way. For instance, the man who was responsible for the genome project to decode the full DNA is a practicing Christian. He doesn't agree with Dawkins. I don't want you to think that he speaks in the name of science. This is his opinion and his view on the world. He actually extended this even further to express how ideas evolve by introducing the mem, M-E-M-E, -E, the mem. Check it out if you want. And the idea is that the mem is anything, let's see, yeah, patterns of information that can thrive only in brains or artificially manufactured products of brains, books, computers, etc. So those are, like the DNA, those are patterns of information, because at the end of the day, what is DNA, according to him and others, it's just information. Okay, well, I don't agree. I'm information science, but I don't agree. I think they don't know what they're talking about. But we'll get to that. The point, though, is that patterns of information also evolve by moving from one to the other. So if I have a good idea, what happens? It's stronger than your weaker idea. So I communicate that to you. Now, you so you copied. I made a copy. You get the copy. You might improve on it. And then you make another copy in somebody else's brain who makes a copy in a book, who gets copied back in the brain, into computer, back into brain. So ideas evolve. There's actually been studies to try to locate the MEMS, and now they're kind of, uh, kind of going down. So he pushed his, 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 his understanding, theory, theory of evolution, all the way through. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, and I'll cover those next time. We have a lot of issues. Okay. What I want to do, though, right now, is to make sure we all understand what this theory is saying. I have by no means addressed some of the difficult points, 
Some of you have already raised those. We're going to come back and cover them. And, I, and the reason why I'm not covering them now right now is because I really want to give them the time that they deserve. However, if you ask me today, when we abstract away, when we take away all the sort of materialistic ideology that some folks are trying to shove down our throats out of the picture, when we look at the theory as science, trying to explain how life came about, this is the best bet we've got so far, by far. There isn't anything out there that even get close to this. As a scientific theory with some power of prediction, how do you know if a science scientific theory is good? Well, it has certain key features to it. Number one, it is simple. Number two, it has predictive powers. Number three, it is universal. Number four, it has as few assumptions as possible. Number five, it does not rely on the supernatural. Creationism can't even get close to this. Creationism has, uh, those folks who are in a creationist tendency have a lot of really good points to bring about. Many of them are very smart. Many, many of them are very capable of doing the right analysis and they have, they speak with eloquence and they have a lot to contribute to. I'm not trying to tell you that they don't know what they're talking about. A lot of them actually do, much more than I. But do they have a full theory? No. No more so than people who tell me that the world is 10,000 years old or 5,000 years old. They can critique the existing theories, yes, but they don't have a compelling one to replace it by. If there was one, I'll, I'll take it. But there isn't. However, the theory of evolution, as I propose it to you, has nothing in it that contradicts Scripture from a material point of view. Right? From a material point of view. I'll tell you what our challenges are going to be. Not whether God created Adam from dust or if he picked a creature and then put into the, the soul of that creature and sold into this creature a supernatural soul, or if he went to, if he in, instilled into Adam the supernatural soul when Adam was conceived. Any of those ex- interpretations may work. Some have some more difficulties than others. But any of them would work. All right? The tough nut to crack for us is Eve. Well, as usual. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's Eve. Because in the case of Eve, God made Eve from the side of Adam. That is a dogma. This is, no, this is not poetic. This is not a poetic style. There is truth behind it. We have to contend with it. All right? We can't just ignore this and say, well, yeah, that's sort of poetical to say that somehow they're related. Uh Uh-uh. This is something that requires assent of the faith. And therefore, we need to remember what I told you last time. We do not build our faith on science. Only a fool would do so. Because science is ever-changing. Everything I told you today and 10 years from now will be all laughing. Because they found something else that completely changed everything. Who knows? Science is ever-changing. Right? So what, which brings us back one more time, why would Catholics have a difficulty stating that in, say, a university setting? Why? Because they themselves are not sure of the foundation of the church and of the world being a cosmic liturgy. 
But when Catholics become, when Catholics understand this and are now certain that the world, the whole universe, is a temple created by God for us so we may give Him glory, and that the liturgy is really the source of life. It's this tree of life that God planted into the world to feed the world. Once we have this cosmic view of the liturgy, then we have no problem asserting the truth of faith. Hence, our fundamental crisis is not, was never, will never be, in a, in a, in a, in a stricto sensu way, the attacks made by materialists. It is the crisis of the faith within the church that the Catholics do not recognize the church for what the church is. For if they did, as Scripture itself teaches, they would have built their house on the rock. And all the storms of materialism would come and their, and their house would remain unshaken. But if it is when they move away from the rock and they build their house on the sand, which is, in a sense, science, because science is always shifting, when the shift occurs, what will remain from their house? That's the challenge for us. What does it mean to be Catholic? And you will discover that there's a lot for us to learn from the book of Genesis once we really hit the ground running studying the text. All right, let's, we have some time for questions. Yes? Um, well, no, see, that's the problem. We do not have any evidence, any tangible evidence, that this is what happened at the beginning of life. We only have very circumstantial evidence based on fossil records, and most of those are kind of problematic. But what we have is a theory that kind of says, based on what we know right now, if we run the movie backward, everything seems to be pointing to one beginning. Just as when you run the movie backward in the universe, well, everything seems to be... Before the fall of Adam and Eve, was there anything like mutation? Uh, well, of course, we have no way of knowing. However, there is no reason to think that there was no mutation before the fall of Adam and Eve. In other words, if this process of evolution was uh, purposely willed by God, then it is good. Now, there are some issues we need to talk more about. But fundamentally, if that's God's will, it is good. And it, yeah, it predates the fall. It isn't a distortion or a disorder. If that's what you have in mind. Yes. 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 Evolution teaches that human evolved from another species all the way back to a very simple organism. But what evolution does not teach is that we descend from the apes. In other words, it wasn't true that at one point you only had a population of apes, and one of these days, two of those apes got up and said, Howdy. But we didn't look like humans at one point. Correct. We did not look like humans. Correct. But remember, without the supernatural soul in us, we would not look like humans either. And there are a lot of those around right now. Yes. Yes, that's what they said. There's a positive sense of evolution. You're bringing up the issue of loss of appendage. There is a problem that Darwin noticed when he was going about, and others noticed as well. Why is it that a serpent seems to have a part of a hip? Why is it you have birds that don't, can't fly? Why do you have all these things that makes no sense? Why would God create a bird that can't fly? Here, I don't like you. Zap. <laughs> Try to fly now. Ha! I mean, how can you ascribe purpose to something like that? And that's where the theory of evolution has power. It says, okay, that's the process of evolution. 
they used to use the wings before. Their environment changed. They don't need to use the wings anymore. Makes sense. There's power to it. Now, the problem, again, is that we have never seen it happen. But there's definitely a power that is much better than saying, well, God created this poor creature this way. Okay? And, and, and besides, it gets us into a much deeper problem when we talk about pain, as we'll see next time. Yes. Right, but that, has, that, that, is, that is something that is completely constricted to the humans, not to anybody else. Okay? And we'll get to talk about that a little bit later. It's a really an interesting uh, process you're describing here because it's the opposite of evolution, right? It's, it's going backward. This is one of my pet peeves with Dawkins' theory. It seems to be only linear. So, but fundamentally, it is a point that says, well, yeah, evolution can happen because obviously something changed in the race that made it unable to live a thousand years. How deep was that change? How powerful was it? Who knows, right? So that's a, that's a good point. Yes. Yes. Because the problem, see, is that pro- pro- the Protestant movement does not have the church. All they have is scripture. Right? All they have is scripture. All they go by is scripture. So you mess with scripture, you mess with the entire set of belief. And evolution strikes at the heart of it and makes it really, really difficult for anybody who holds the book to figure out a proper way to interpret it. How do you interpret scripture? If you tell me Genesis is not literal, because science seems to say so, then what other passages of Genesis are not literal? What other passages of Genesis of, of, of the of Scripture I might I have to interpret differently? Maybe Christ is just a man, right? The, the, as soon as you break that that point, since you said that the foundation of your faith is the book, as soon as you somebody shows you there is ambiguity in the way you interpret that book, that person introduced doubt in your faith. Catholics don't have that problem. Our faith is founded on three things. Scripture, magisterium, tradition. And they work all three together. All three together. That's why we're not as impacted as they are by this whole issue. Or we shouldn't be. Yes? How many years did Scripture tell us passed between creation of man and Jesus' time? About 5,500 and something. Right? And if you, if you consider this timeline, um, and you kind of go back and look at the Bronze Age and correlate it with what Scripture says, you will see definitely some correlation. It isn't all fanciful. The problem, though, and we see that also in the genealogy in Matthew, we're assuming that it is an American who wrote all that. And he was driven by historical exactitude. He had to report on every person in the whole genealogy. But in Matthew, we know this is not the case. We know in Luke, it's not the case. They're jumping. They're only going to specific people because they are not bound by this. You understand? So what is literal interpretation? We have to be careful. Correct. It's the, I mean, Luther removed seven books and parts of books, and it essentially, in the English world, became the King James Bible. And then out of the King James Bible is what you have today in the Protestant world. Yeah. Yes. That's one way to look at it. Yeah, you could you could you can think of it moving this way. I tend to think of it more in the cosmological terms because earth what is when I say earth they really don't mean earth. We'll get to it to this again when we look at the, the terms themselves, but 
the, um, um, the approach is to think that really it's... Right. The deep is the abyss, not, not earth as earth, right? And so the, the, the abyss is Tehom and Behom, which is chaos, right? And if you really think about our study in the theory of Big Bang, we saw how in the first 200,000 years of the universe, there was no light as we see it, and it was extremely chaotic. That's one explanation. It is possible, absolutely. But I don't really subscribe to it personally. But you could, you could, if you want, you can say that. The problem is if you start saying that, then you can find a whole bunch of gaps everywhere else, and then you can start explaining. So I, I, I don't really subscribe to this. I, I've heard of it now that you tell me what it is, but I find it a little bit doubtful. Any other question? Yes, briefly. The, problem, the question is, am I going to go through creationism? The problem is there's nothing really to go through. Creationism... Yes, there are some smart ideas to sort of point out. Like, for instance, the uh, irreducibly complex. You've all have heard about irreducible, compl- irreducible complexity. No? We'll, we'll talk about that. The problem is that there isn't a theory, a formal theory, that tells you how the world came about, other than saying God created it. Well, okay, what are you going to do with that? As soon as you say God created it, you might just as well, God created everything just the way it is right now. And we pack and leave. There's nothing to do, right? So that's the, that's the problem. Creation is more a reaction, a defense against, more, more so than a, an actual theoretical science. No. No, there is variation among the themes. Yeah, I mean, you have people who are most, most would be, I suppose, young earth theorists, but others are not. They would tell you, yeah, the universe evolved, but when it came to earth, right, God created Adam just the way it is, and beast, each of its own kind, and everyone is separate, and that's how it is. Okay? So it, it, there is a variation in the theme. But the problem is, where is the scientific theory? Show it to me. Yes? Well, the new buzzword is, is divine intelligence or creative intelligence. No, it's... Um, it's uh, you're talking about... Um, design theory. Yes, yeah, intelligent design. Intelligent. It's not a theory. That's the problem. And there, it's not a way to attack the theory of, of, of evolution. I'll show you... Next, next time, I'll walk you through the weak, weaker ways of attacking this theory and why they don't work, and this is one of them. And I'll show you the stronger ways where really the issues are and where the difficult points are. And that's what we need to focus on. Yes. Yes, I would teach evolution, but properly understood. I don't want to use the ideology that is being used right now where you cannot say the name of God, which is completely rubbish, Right? That's the problem. The problem is when, you, when the message is being delivered, they're so sticky about this business and not saying anything about God that the students think, oh, well, where's God? But if they were able to say, okay, kids, this is what science shows us, show us today. Tomorrow it may change, but this is the best we've got right now. Okay. Now, could God have created the world this way? Absolutely. God can do everything. Right? And maybe it's up to you to go ask your Religious teachers, why would he create this, the world this way? And why would he not create the world this way? How about we engage in conversation for once? Because there are some interesting interesting um, consequences from thinking that God created the world just as it is right now. Why would God create a mantis that would eat the male while they're mating? You find that in nature. Why? 
What is God's purpose of creating this? What are, we, what are we learning from this? Well, there are certain things we can learn, but fundamentally, we are faced with the problem of pain and suffering in nature. Why is it that you have these parasites that actually burrow into a, a worm or some other creature and live off that thing until they've eaten the whole thing over a slow period of time? Why would God do that? Do, do you understand the problem when you start facing it, when you say creationism is just, you know, God created everything? Why did he do that? I mean, he could do everything, right? Why didn't he just create, you know, the apples and the pears and the trees and the flowers and butterflies and nice things flowing around and us, and maybe, well, the lions and the elephants because they're, you know, nice to have around. Bingo! Now we're starting to talk. You see, this is why I... I think creationism, from a philosophical point of view, from a religious point of view, is actually anti-Christian. And I'm not the one saying it, by the way. I'll read that quote next, next week. It is Cardinal John Henry Newman. And not only him, other leading Catholic thinkers. So, yes. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, I don't even go there. This is, this is funny. I mean, how, how could they come up with these theories? Why does the universe look so old? Well, you know, God uh, sort of put that um, um, piece of bone over there and made it look old. God can do everything, right? Actually, you find that in books. I read it. God can do anything, therefore, anything we don't understand we're difficult, God made it. I mean, this is the end of thinking. It's, it's very dangerous. It is very dangerous. It's really anti-Catholic. We cannot accept it. Look, anytime anybody come to you and tell you, okay, in order for you to believe this, you need to shut your reason down. Shut it down. Run. You run as fast as you can. Because faith does not contradict reason. Faith goes beyond reason, just like love. When you love somebody, you don't sit down and reason it out. A plus B equals C, therefore I love this person, QED. Do you do that? No one does that. But does it contradict your reason? If somebody's beating you up and telling you he loves you, do you believe him? No. Why? Because your reason is telling you otherwise, right? So our faith is reasonable. It's a reasonable faith. That's the beauty, the beauty of the Catholic faith. It engages your reason completely with full liberty to its extreme and then takes you beyond. So anytime anybody comes and says, well, you know, it's... This bone was here because God made it look like nonsense. You just can't take that. Uh, Michael, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. In one sense, I completely understand this answer because St. Ephraim would say this. St. Methodius would say this. Many of the Eastern Fathers would say this when it comes to the fact that God is the unapproachable light. It's, he's the other, the one we can never understand. Yes, I can understand this. That's about God in his essence. But not when God talks to us. Scripture tells us nature is the book of God. God speaks to us through nature. Right? Isaiah found God in the breeze. What is the breeze for? For us to find God. Jesus used pastoral images all the time to help us understand what he's all about. So when God speaks to us, he being a rational God, be better intelligible so we can understand him. That's where he's going wrong. Why would God put a bone... 
and make it so unintelligible for us? He wouldn't. See, the question we asked last time, why is it that there are mathematical laws governing the universe? That's the key. Because God is rational. God is intelligible. God is constant. God doesn't change. God is good. Right? Yes, that's a very good point. Absolutely. That's, we need to be in dialogue with God. And if nature can't help us get to understand God, then there is no purpose to it. Look, why do we have kids? From God's perspective, why do we have kids? No. That's secondary. Really. In God's eyes, that's secondary. To glorify Him, yes. But what does that mean? Very practical. Very practical. So we can understand Him. So we can come to love Him. Because when we have kids, and I behave a certain way, they don't listen, they're stubborn, they're doing this and the other, they're stealing the candy, right? We look at them and we go, whoa, you really love me, don't you? Because we see what we're doing. So the family is a school of God. It's given us so we can learn. Why do we have a dog? We learn the virtues from the dog. Patience, fidelity, generosity. Why do we have a cat? So we can say God is mysterious. (laughs) I got two of those things at home. All right? So... Anyhow, all of nature is the book open that that God wrote for us to lead us back home. That's the natural understanding we share with everybody. The supernatural understanding is really nature is part of the liturgy to glorify God. That's the thing that only Catholics have or should have. And we're going to get into this when we hit the, the book Genesis itself. Yes. Absolutely. That's a dogma. Thank you for bringing this up. Definitely. We've talked about this in the previous talks. Absolutely. God created everything out of nothing. The only question is, did He create everything directly Himself? Or did He allow a secondary process to participate in His creative act? And we Catholics tend to think it's the latter. Why? Because of Our Lady. You see, Our Lady is co-redemptrix. right? What does that mean? She participates with and under Christ in the salvation of the world. Well, if I can't say that the world somehow participates with God in the creative act, if I can't say that parents are co-creator with God in bringing forth eternal souls in the world, I'm not going to be able to say this about Our Lady. You understand? There is a consistency and a logic and a theological in the theology of the Catholic Church that brings forth all these elements from the Big Bang to the theory of evolution, properly understood, to theology to Our Lady, all together in a consistent view. It's a beautiful symphony. We just have to discover it. The liturgy is the key. It's the, the, it's, the, it's the door. It's the royal door that leads us to a full understanding of all of this. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.